This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of March 29th, 2021, uh, the second week of Dr. Oz as guest host. Mm-hmm. And on Monday, March 29th, we have the contestants Bryce Huang, a medical student from Santa Clara, California, Cindy Munt, a forensic evaluator from Seattle, Washington, and Susan McMillan an Arabic translator from Portland, Maine, whose one-day cash winnings total $35,600. And we get the Jeopardy! round categories, A Gusty Move, Around the USA, Books by Chapters, Getting Down to Business, During the John Adams Presidency, and You'll Eat Those Words. Mm -hmm. Apparently, a baseball brouhaha is also called a rhubarb. I did not know that. Although I guessed it based on this edible pie plant, because if it were something else you put in a dessert pie, you would call it a fruit, not a plant. Yeah. Right. Edible pie plant is a weird enough phrase that it almost certainly means rhubarb. I guess you could try and think of things that would be part of like a like a shepherd's pie or a chicken pot mm. pie or something, you know, but like that, that's a stretch. That's mm. like mm. edible pie plant is rhubarb. Mm. We recently had a shepherd's pie with sweet potato as the top. Ooh, mm. that's so good. So good. I love that. Mm, so good. There was a triple stumper right after that in the same category. This is the, you'll eat those words. At the thousand dollar level, a 1930s guide to underwear lingo provides the first known written use of this baked product as slang for money. Susan guessed what is dough, but of course dough isn't baked yet. Mm-hmm. The answer is bread. Nobody went in for bread, and I've had to explain that now. Of course, that's you know before my time, but I've had to explain that to a number of people upon their first introduction to William Joel's Piano Man. Oh. They sit at the bar and put bread in my jar. Usually it's like, you know, students who like are finding new, like older music. And they're like, why would they put bread in a, what does that mean? Like it's slang for money. They're not actually just shoving rolls into his like tip jar. That would be really rude. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Dick move. Like, hey, you're playing really well here. Uh, Have a slice of bread. It's better than a religious treatise in lieu of gratuity. Um, That's true. That's true. Here's a tip. Go to church. It's like, yep. Here's a tip. Allow me to actually pay my bills for doing my yep. job. Yep. I, I doubt that any of our listeners do that, but if you do, cut it out. Yeah. Um, it's not It's not funny. It's not clever. It's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Connecting with Piano Man and... Um, we just we just had uh, an interruption because your dog was howling, which reminded me of uh, the TikTok videos where people will play Piano Man in the presence of their dogs, especially huskies. Apparently, huskies really like howling to Piano Man. <laughs> um. Well, my dog is part husky, so that makes sense. Oh, okay. 
the worst part. <laughs> uh, we had TikTok in the getting down to business category at the $1,000 level. In 2020, our Secretary of State danced around banning this app from Beijing. The problem? It had been downloaded more than 2 billion times. Uh, Cindy got that one. That's TikTok. Mm-hmm. I spent too much time on TikTok. Daily Double number one comes up at the $800 level of that same category, getting down to business as the 22nd pick. Bryce finds it and makes it a true daily double with 3,600. Susan has 4,000 at this point. Cindy has 2,200. And he gets the clue. As tires weren't colored black until 1912, Bibendum, the now 123-year-old mascot of this company, is white. Uh, Bryce guessed what is Pirelli, um, but they were looking for Michelin, the Michelin man. Yeah. Apparently his name is Bibendum. I mean, if my name was Bibendum, I'd I'd go by Michelin man, too. I think that means something to do with drinking, in Latin, at least. Yes, nunc est Bibendum is Latin for now is the time to drink. I don't know why the Michelin man is named that. Yes, I I am mystified. I am looking at an at a a Michelin poster from 1898, which says "Nunc est bibendum," with a man made of tires holding up a glass of something. It's in French, so I don't know what it says. But uh, to your health, mm-hmm. uh, à votre santé. Mm-hmm. Uh, c'est à dire that's like um, that is just like I think that's like that is to say like um, mm-hmm. I eat the plums <laughs> yes <laughs> there we go we've come full circle what does that it's oh, an idiom. And what does it mean oh my god there's a there's a poster of him like smoking a cigar generously handing out tires to a family like but the tire is being taken from the middle of his body he just like opens his gut and a tire is coming out this is absurd were they really bad at advertising 120 years ago or are we going to look that ridiculous oh well everyone looks that ridiculous when you look back yeah okay. this is not a this is not a rabbit hole worth going down okay all right i'm, I'm pulling myself out okay <laughs> <laughs> onward anyway yes uh but bryce misses it right yes uh so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Bryce has come back up to 200. Cindy is at 3,600. Susan's at 4,600. And we have the double Jeopardy round categories. Five Summoner's Tales. Asia. It's a nice, <laughs> narrow category. Um, they, <laughs> Sorry. They lived to 100. The Nobel Prize in Physics. Netflix shows by characters. And Word origins or in quotation marks did you ever get the impression during dr oz's run as jeopardy guest host that he was just not familiar with kind of the category gimmicks i mean in this case he explained in the normal way um but Mm -hmm. there were a couple of times where it felt like he over explained because he hadn't maybe known how the gimmicks worked until he was handed the the days the, the days games yeah, maybe. I I just got the impression that he was not comfortable. Yeah, which agreed. I, it may have been. It may have been a lack of familiarity with the things. It may just have been. I don't know that just not not the place for him. So. Yep. Sorry, I, I was laughing because that always reminds me of there's a 
Saturday Night Live Celebrity Jeopardy the I don't remember which one it is, but an audio daily double. Name this continent. Asia. <laughs> yes. I can't. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So anytime Asia is the thing. I like it. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I love SNL Celebrity Jeopardy. So good. Daily double number two is the first pick of the round. It's in the Nobel Prize in Physics category. Uh, it's at the $1,600 level. Bryce nails it he like we said is at 200 and the other scores are the same so he wagers 2000 he gets the clue carl ferdinand braun and this man took the 1909 prize for the development of wireless telegraphy and he gets around to it with who is marconi mm-hmm. yeah a number of these nobel prize in physics clues we've touched on during my nobel deep dive and at mm-hmm. other times marconi's kind of a jeopardy guy to know he's important Mm -hmm. i think we talked during the quiz about the 800 dollar clue in the in the nobel prize in physics is that dennis gabor accepting the 1971 prize or one of these three-dimensional images he invented uh bryce got that one that's a hologram Mm -hmm. i do remember that Mm -hmm. yeah Daily Double number three comes up as the 10th pick at the 1200 dollar level of they lived to 100 Susan finds this one. Uh, she's at 5,000 to Bryce's 10,200 and Cindy's 3,600. She wagers 4,000, uh, trying to get into a close second place. And she gets the clue, the mother of a president, her maiden name was Fitzgerald. Susan says, who is Kennedy? And gets no response, just a longer pause and then fills in Rose Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is correct. And good strategy on mm-hmm. her part. Mm-hmm. Uh, see if they'll take the last name, because if you have the last name correct, they mm-hmm. will, yeah, they'll, they'll give you a be more specific. They won't just tell you you're wrong. Right. If they need a first name. She makes a, makes a good move there. And at the end of the double jeopardy round, uh, Susan is in second place at 13,800. Cindy is back at 6,400. And Bryce has moved himself into the lead at 15,400. He had a very good double Jeopardy. They get the final Jeopardy category, authors, book to screen. And the clue is, horrified by the 1964 movie musical from her work, she okayed a UK stage version as long as, quote, no Americans were involved. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Uh, Cindy gets it right with who is Travers. Mm-hmm. P.L. Travers, and she wagered 3100 so she goes up to 9500 Susan guessed who is Christy, but that is incorrect, and she wagered 5000 so she drops down to 8800 and Bryce got it correct with who is Travers, and wagered 13000 Little over cover bet, yeah. Mm-hmm. But he gets it correct, and he jumps up to 28400 And, you know, I'm just, I'm shocked that the author of Mary Poppins was not thoroughly impressed with Dick Van Dyke's English accent. <laughs> that's what really sold um, the movie for me. Yeah, I think I think that's really, you know, what people like about that. Um, <laughs> uh, a bit of Mary Poppins movie trivia that's been coming up in my circles a lot recently is that the song um, A Spoonful of Sugar Helps the Medicine Go Down was inspired by by um, the composer's children having gotten their polio vaccine, uh, which was administered on a sugar cube. Mm. Yay, vaccines. 
Yay, vaccines. That's probably why this bit of trivia is going around. Um, it might be. Yeah. Uh, so on Tuesday, March 30th, we have the contestants Amanda Gaspari, a curriculum specialist from Lakeland, Florida, Jean Westcott, a book publishing professional from Woodbridge, Virginia, and Bryce Wang, a medical student from Santa Clara, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $28,400. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, history, park themes, 12-letter words, Kipling characters, Kim, and Mogul E, E in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. We had a missed one in the 12-letter words category. The clue there was the official act of making someone a saint in the Catholic Church. And Amanda missed that one with what is beatification, which is a very good guess. But canonization is what mm-hmm. they were looking for. Jean ended up getting that one. Beatification means like more like blessing. But it's a, it's a, I thought it was a really solid guess. It was good. Yeah. But it is yeah. 13 letters. Ah, so good counting. It doesn't work. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the Kipling characters category. Uh, it's pick number 11. It's at the $800 level. And Bryce finds it. He is at 3600 in the lead over Gene's 2200 and Amanda's negative 800 And he wagers 2000 And the clue is, it was din, 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 as the regiment called for this water carrier. And he gets Ira correct with, who is Gungadin? Mm-hmm. Which is a story that I am woefully unfamiliar with. Yeah, I could not tell you anything about that. In general, I was I was kind of impressed that they managed to get five clues about Kipling characters that were Jeopardy round level, having eliminated Mowgli, Mowgli mm-hmm. um, by having that be a, a pun category. Right. Um, yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round. Bryce is at 6,600, Jean is in the lead at 7,600, and Amanda is out of the hole at 800. And they get the double Jeopardy round categories, Lakes and Rivers, The Old Testament, Food Labels and Fables, Abbreviated TV, Science Class, and AHA. All of the responses starting with HA. There was some fussing among my virtual pub trivia team about the th- the $2,000 level of the Old Testament. Uh, the clue there was the last book of the Old Testament is named for this prophet whose name means my messenger. And no one tried that one. Uh, it is Malachi. Some members of my team rightly noted that if you are Catholic, then you have some additional books um, that I believe get put with the Old Testament um, so that if you have a Catholic Bible, the Old Testament ends with Maccabees. Hmm. Yeah, which I had not thought about. Which I believe that means hammer, doesn't it? Oh, uh, what, does, what does Maccabees mean? Yeah, I thought Maccabee meant hammer. It could be. It's not important. Um, <laughs> well, not, well, now I need to know. Really, really <laughs> I, I always think of Maccababies from the Rugrats rendition of the story <laughs> of uh, Hanukkah. Oh, yeah. I um, I'm not sure I've seen that that one. Although Fair. I have watched, I've watched some Rugrats in my time. Mm. Pretty much all of my knowledge of Judaism comes from Rugrats. Hmm. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so Daily Double number two comes up in the Lakes and Rivers category as the second pick. So super early in the round. It's at the $1,200 level. And Bryce finds it. Jean and Amanda are exactly where they were when the round started uh, because Bryce got clue number one correct in order to call clue number two and get that daily double. Uh, so he's at 7,000 at this point and makes it a true daily double. And he gets the clue dipping into Ohio. This one of the Great Lakes extends farthest south. And he correctly responds, what is Lake Erie? Mm-hmm. He seems to be coming into his own in this episode. Uh, yes. As, as the returning champion. And he has a very like animated uh, mannerism in how he f- figures out his responses. Yeah, he gestures a lot. He kind of talks mm-hmm. with his hands. And we saw that in the Daily Double as well. Yes, absolutely. The third Daily Double is pick number six. So again, very early. Uh, it's in the Old Testament category. Bryce finds this one too. It's at the $1,600 level. He's up to 16000 at this point. Gene is still at 7600 And Amanda has dropped to zero. He wagers 5000 Personally, I would have done a little more, but... Well, that's a big yeah. bit. And he gets the clue, this book is aptly titled. It consists of five chapters of woe over the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. He gets that correct with what is Lamentations. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Bryce has a very impressive lot game with 34,200. Jean is at 12,800 and Amanda is at 4,800. And we have the final Jeopardy category, American History. And the clue, while performing in Philadelphia, the future father of this man sent a letter threatening to slit Andrew Jackson's throat. That's charming. Um, Amanda has it correct with who is John Wilkes Booth. And she has wagered everything, 4,800, so she's coming up to 9,600. Jean has humorously guessed who is George H.W. Bush. Uh... Dr. Oz says he wasn't that old. She says, no, H.W. No, H.W. is so that <laughs> he great. is that old. <laughs> uh, she's wagered everything but $2, so she drops down. And Bryce has uh, written who is Booth. Uh, that is correct. And he's wagered 6000 He's not coming close to risking his lock here. I no. think he's trying to get above 40000 Yeah. So, uh, with 40200 he will be our winner going into Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Very impressive game. Mm-hmm. And on Wednesday, we have the contestants. Kevin Tanager, a pathologist originally from Chicago, Illinois. Emily Seaman, a law clerk from Houston, Texas. And Bryce Huang, a medical student from Santa Clara, California, who is in two days won $68,600. And the Jeopardy round categories are dealing with the paint, animals, kitchen measurements, heteronymic pairs, funny books, and ranch dressing. And I think this might be what you're talking about where like Oz over explains something because he explains what heteronymic pairs means. But yep. maybe you don't know what heteronyms are. Uh, maybe. Words that are spelled the same but pronounced differently. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and thus have different meanings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they did need correct pronunciations here. Unlike in many uh, Jeopardy Mm -hmm. categories, you need to demonstrate that you know both pronunciations. In the funny books category at the $400 level, Randall Munro's What If answers, what if you hit a baseball pitched near this velocity, about 671 million miles per hour? 
the answer there is the speed of light, but mostly I just want to say, go read Randall Munro's What If, because it's a fun read. And if you haven't checked out XKCD, his webcomic, for mm-hmm. the last, what, 15 years? Oh. It's been around a long time, but yeah. yeah. His web, yeah. XKCD is awesome. Check out What If. Uh, yeah. Imagine getting to discover XKCD now. Oh. Like, oh, the joy. Yeah. I don't know how you could have missed it up to this point, but. You know, if anybody yeah. is discovering it because we told you about it now, like, just enjoy it. You're welcome. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, go back to the beginning. It's, although the early stuff, there was some weird stuff in, like, the very early days. Yeah, but, that's true. But that's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, in that same category, the $800 level, I saw a bunch of scuttlebutt about this clue, and I don't understand it. In 2017, this Me Talk Pretty One Day humorous opened his diaries for Theft by Finding. Kevin re- correctly responded, who is Sedaris? And I, I I saw multiple people being like, huh, weird. They didn't give a, he did, you know, a be more specific or a, like criticizing Jeopardy for it. Or like one person was like, oh, they don't have to, they, they don't have to give first names anymore. And the Jeopardy what? fan was like, uh, they've never had to. So welcome never. to Jeopardy. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. So, yeah. No, unless they, oh, well. They're, yeah, no. Uh, Amy, Amy Sedaris is an American humorist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But as far as we know, up to any all documentation, her pronouns are her. Right. Therefore, there's, yeah, there's no ambiguity. The, cl- the clarifying pronoun in the clue, mm-hmm. it only po- points to David Sedaris. Right. And so it, unless there's a third Sedaris that I'm unaware of. I mean, he has a brother named. Paul, I think, but Paul doesn't write. Mm-hmm. Do I know all of the Sedaris siblings? I do. I do know all of the Sedaris siblings. I Personally, think. you guys hang out, right? <laughs> no, I just read everything David Sedaris publishes. It's embarrassing. Uh, I know his entire family tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I don't. It's it's, it's not yeah. ambiguous which Sedaris they meant. Yeah, because I um, saw this stuff before I watched the episode, and I was like, okay, I, I've got to keep an eye out for this. And then I saw the clue, I was like... Yeah, that's I don't see the problem here. Anyway. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't think they should have required a, a first name. Daily Double number one comes up in that same funny books category. Uh, it's the 15th pick. We got these ones all out of order. We were jumping all around the board in this game. It's at the thousand dollar level and Emily finds it. At this point, she has 4,800. Kevin's at 3,000. Bryce is at negative 2,800. He went into the red and just kept having a harder and harder time. Um, It was a a rough round for him that turned it into um, a a struggle in the second round to get in contention. Emily wagers 2,000, and she gets the clue. His memoir, Riding the Elephant, ranges from growing up in Glasgow to hosting a late-night American TV show. And she gets it correct with who is Ferguson, Craig Ferguson. Yep. Yeah, and this round, Bryce took a lot of guesses. He, he yeah. was in first on a lot of clues, and he got a lot of them wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you know what? He only got four wrong in the game, but it seemed like a lot more. Yeah. 
he just dug himself into a hole real early. Yeah, early, he dug in pretty early, right? Uh, he mm-hmm. misses clues as the at the sixth pick, at the eleventh, and the twelfth pick, and there's and the ninth, six, nine, eleven, and twelve. So he got four wrong over the course of seven clues, mm-hmm. pretty early, and really, really dug himself a hole. There can be a thing that happens where. Once you start getting them wrong, you like feel like you need to like scramble to make up ground and you start answering, you start like buzzing on things that you're not as confident yeah. about or just sort of lose your like lose your cool and, um, you know, just sort of don't use your best thinking. Right. And uh, it seemed like seemed like that happened to him for a minute and then he pulled it together. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. By the end of the Jeopardy round. Emily's at 7,800. Kevin's at 4,800. Bryce has gotten back up to only 800 in the hole. And we have the double jeopardy categories. Native American history. At the movies. Internal rhyme surnames. Uh, Dr. Oz clarifies like Sweeney. So Swee rhymes with knee, I guess. World capitals. English drama that ain't Shakespeare. And crossword clues are. Um, I think this was one where I thought he overexplained. I think that he said they would provide the number of letters. Mm-hmm. Like always. Which, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't see that on the J archive, but I, I I pretty clearly remember him saying something something about that, where I was like, that's just how Jeopardy works, my friend. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that's how that kind of category works. They know that. Um, mm-hmm. but it's okay. I guess better to over-explain than to under-explain. Yeah. I did not think that internal rhyme surnames worked well as a category. I had the same thought. Hearing the clues and the, like, the responses, I was like, okay, it's questions about people. And I don't know, the fact that they have rhymes in their last name is not guiding me anywhere. Yeah, and the... um. In three of the five cases, the rhyme was the same syllable repeated twice, right? Like, tutu mm-hmm. is, like, the the idea that is that it fits the category because two rhymes with two. Uh, similar, yeah. Similarly, Bernini, knee rhymes with knee, mm-hmm. and Sununu, new rhymes with new. But, like, they're the same syllable repeated twice. Right. Greeley and Romo, I, I see it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I didn't think the category title was very helpful and then for three of them it felt like they would have done better in a like surnames with a repeated syllable category yeah um because yeah. like if you turn in a a, a poem that's supposed to rhyme in fifth grade <laughs> exactly. and you've rhymed new with new you're going to get a bad grade right that's what i tell when i yep when i teach songwriting i'm like you can rhyme a word with itself but that's lazy, and I'm not going to accept it. <laughs> yeah. Like, rappers do it from time to time. Yeah. But if you're it's... not a famous rapper yet, so you don't get to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it's homophones, then it's clever. Mm-hmm. Uh... Yeah. If it's if it sounds the same, but it's two different words, great. But if yeah. you're just rhyming me with me, it doesn't work. Yep. Anyway. Uh, Daily Double number two is at pick number five. It's in the Native American history category. I thought this was a good category. Uh, overall, I thought the, the yes. clues were uh, 
mostly properly valued, like in difficulty. Mm-hmm. And I thought thought that they were like varied enough to to really be like quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, it was at the twelve hundred dollar level. Kevin found it. Uh, he was at seventy six hundred. Emily was up to eleven thousand, and Bryce was still at negative eight hundred. And he wagered twenty four hundred. He got the clue. At Sitka in 1804, the Tlingit lost a crucial battle to these invaders they called the Anushi. And he gets that correct with who are the Russians. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three comes up an English drama that ain't Shakespeare at the $2,000 level as the 25th pick. Bryce finds this one. At this point, he's made it up to 8,000 to Emily's 12,600 and Kevin's 14,000. And he goes for it. He wagers 6,000. He's looking to tie first place uh, with five clues left in the round. Um, That's a gutsy move. And uh, we approve. And I like it. Um, Yeah. yeah. Uh, He gets the clue. This period of the returned monarchy featured plays known for bodiness, like the country wife. And he correctly answers, what is restoration? Uh-huh. And then he gets a couple more clues correct. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Bryce has moved into the lead at 16,800. Nice recovery, Bryce. Yeah. Emily is in third place with 12,600. And Kevin is at 16,000. So it is very close, all with very good scores. Mm-hmm. The final Jeopardy category is logos and the clue. After 9-11, designer Milton Glaser modified this iconic logo of his, adding a bruise and the words, more than ever. And this was a uh, triple stumper, which kind of surprised me. I, surprised me too. I yeah. uh, I was sitting through the think music wondering how each of them was going to write so, the correct answer. I, I had the same thought. I was like, I, I think I'd probably just like draw the logo, right? Like, yeah, because that would be simpler and more accurate, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was a triple stumper. Emily wagered 4,200. That would put her in a tie with Bryce if he wagered mm. zero. Uh, and she incorrectly wrote, what is FedEx? Classic. Not as funny when as when Brian did it to Ken, but yes. it's still very funny. Uh, wagered 9201 and drew the peace symbol as well as wrote, what is the peace symbol? Uh, and that was incorrect. So he dropped down to 6799. And Bryce wagered 16,000, which is a cover bet. Yep. Uh, and he wrote, what is Johnson and Johnson? I don't know wh- where he was going for that. Uh, but that is also incorrect. So he dropped down to 800. Uh, but that's the I Heart New York logo. Mm-hmm. Like I Heart NY. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. It just came to me right away. I was like, of course, because 9-11, we mostly associate with New York and more than ever fits really well behind that phrase. I, yep. Yeah. So... Yeah, I I can sort of see Kevin's guess that you know like like we need peace more, peace than, more than ever. Than I could I can I yeah. could get get that where the thought process was there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Bryce was thinking of like maybe bruise led him toward like band aids. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, FedEx, I'm pretty sure is not correct. Yeah, I think not, that's. But Emily's wagering means that she is the champion. With 8,400. 
That's right. Uh, so on Thursday, we have the contestants Scott Schufeld, a writer originally from Tavistock, Ontario, Canada. KT Lowe, a librarian from St. Clair Shores, Michigan. And Emily Seaman, a law clerk from Houston, Texas, whose one-day cash winnings total 8400 And we have the Jeopardy round categories April Fool, U.S. Geography, Science and Scientists, TV and Film, Safe at Home, and Out at First, Out in quotation marks. I will be in the first syllable of every correct response. Mm-hmm. I thought that clue, that category was extremely easy. Agreed. I mean, if it gives you the first syllable, it really narrows down your options as far as responses go. Yes. Would outcropping have worked for outcrop? Probably. Probably. I feel like they are two different ways of saying the same thing. Yeah. All right. Yep. Mm-hmm. We had a triple stumper in the very first clue. It's a $600 level in Science and Scientists. The clue is uh, the element Laurentium and a lab at this Californian university are named for Nobel Prize winner Ernest Lawrence. KT got in first and guessed what is UCLA. Emily guessed what is Stanford. But uh, that is UC Berkeley. A way that you can kind of remember that is there is also an element... Named for Berkeley, yeah. Berkelium, Ber- mm-hmm. which uh, you can associate with Laurentium, and remember that those uh, those are all in the same place. You see Berkeley. Mm-hmm. We had a reversal in the safe at home category um, at the four hundred dollar level. The clue was RedCross.org says hire a pro to make sure your home is securely anchored to its foundation for safety in one of these. Katie said a tornado. That was ruled incorrect. Emily responded, what is a flood? Uh, That was ruled incorrect. Scott said, what is a hurricane? That was also ruled incorrect. Uh, So all of them lost 400. And uh, so when they came back from the break, uh, they had adjusted the scores. Um, They should have taken tornado and hurricane hurricane uh they were they were looking for earthquake but any of those i think fits this clue Mm -hmm. um flood does not fit the clue but they gave uh kt and scott uh their 400 back plus 400 for each of them and then restored emily's 400 that she had lost because she would not have had the opportunity to give that wrong response if they had taken the first correct response Mm -hmm. Daily Double number one is in the U.S. Geography category at the $400 level. It is pick number 23, and Scott finds it. He is at 1800 well behind KT's 3000 and Emily's 6200 and he wagers 1000 He gets the clue about 275 miles due west of the famous Four Corners. The Three Corners, where Utah, Arizona, and this state meet, has its own monument. And uh, Scott goes east instead of west and says, what is New Mexico? I guess thinking of the other corner of New Mexico. But that is incorrect. They were looking for Nevada. And Mm -hmm. he kind of says, oh, west. Uh, So he gets that wrong. (laughs) Oops. Yep. Uh, Which, you know, 
honestly, a mistake like that, I'm like, you're on stage, like you're being recorded for national television. That makes sense. Like that's a <laughs> that's a totally understandable. Like just, oh yep. my god, I went the wrong way, right? Like, <laughs> yep, agreed. Yeah, so, uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Scott is at 800, KT is at 3400, and Emily is in the lead at 7600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. 1971, 50 years ago. And you know what? Just a big middle finger is what that feels that like. That is a lie. So, like, it was 30 it just, years ago. Final answer. Yeah. The 70s are 20 years ago. I'm sorry. It just, that's how I still think. Anyway. Yep. Uh, Broadway musicals. Exploring Australia. Immoral line. Currencies. And overlaps, which is kind of like before and after, except... The, the before and after overlap by a syllable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was another one where I was not 100% convinced that Dr. Oz was familiar. <laughs> uh, sure. But I thought uh, those were fun clues. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. They were fun clues. Yeah, I, I enjoyed a lot of them. At the $1,600 level, for example, St. Patrick's Three-Lobed Plant. That's a musical style revived by bands like the Stray Cats. I did not know it the style of the band and i knew it was sham rock something uh katie tried what is sham rock and roll uh that's not correct emily got it with what is sham rockabilly so yeah no, these were fun clues toronto boggin i mm. liked yeah toronto boggin um, was very good yeah uh daily double number two comes up in the uh, exploring australia category at the $1,600 level as the eighth pick. Scott finds this one and uh, makes it a true daily double with $3,600. He's in third place, so and, and we're early in the round, so smart move here. Uh, Emily's at $8,800, Katie's at $5,400, and he gets the clue, this Dutchman charted the coast of North Australia in 1644 and got a sea and an island named for him. And he correctly responds, who is Tasman, Abel Tasman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tasmania being the island. Yep. I like a gutsy daily double wager from third place. Yeah. Because often if you're in third place, it's because you're getting beat, beaten on the buzzer. Um, and you right. can't count on that changing in the mm-hmm. rest of the game. You know, I think that's... Uh, people are hesitant to do those big wagers and they're they're just sort of hoping that like things will turn around and they'll get the hang of the buzzer or like they'll start getting clues that are good for them. And like, you can't count on that. If you, if you're, if you're getting beaten on the buzzer and you have an opportunity to make up ground, you've got to go for it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Daily double number three is in the immoral line category at the $800 level. Scott finds this one too. He found all three of them. Mm -hmm. He has made a move after that, uh, after that daily double. He hung out for a little bit, and then he went on a tear in the second half of the round. So he is now in the lead at 13,600. Emily is at 12,000, and KT is at 7,400. And he wagers 5,000, another big wager. It's pick number 26 in the round, so not a lot left. And he gets the clue, of this title, five score plus one group. The villain says, I don't care how. Hang them, suffocate them, drop them off the roof. I wonder about his thought process because it took him a little while to get there. And I think he maybe started with the quote Mm. then was like, I don't know. I don't know what that's supposed to be. And then went to the math and was like five score plus one. That's 101. 
I have one association with that number, and that's the 101 Dalmatians. And that's what he guessed, and that was correct. (laughs) Yeah, fun seeing him work that out. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Scott has taken the lead with 20,600, Emily's at 12,000, KT's at 7,800, and we have the final Jeopardy category, anti-disestablishmentarianism, which I don't think has been a final Jeopardy category before. Willing to bet Um, it hasn't. Yeah, they had to put two hyphens in it to get it to fit on the screen. Right. Um, (laughs) The clue is, a real-life anti-disestablishmentarian, William Bridgman opposed the 1920 disestablishment of this in Wales. This was obvious to me, but if you have never thought about what anti-disestablishmentarianism is, it might not be to you. Right. Uh, And in fact, this was a triple stumper. Uh, KT guessed, what is the United Kingdom? Um, that's not a bad guess. No. And wagered 7,000, so drops down to 800. Emily, again, guessed what is FedEx. Right. I she, love it. She has a brand. That's <laughs> uh, wonderful. All right. Uh, and Emily wagered everything but $3, so she drops down. And Scott was starting to write something. All he gets down is what is crew, C-R-U. I don't know where he's heading with that. He wagers 3401. So he drops down to 17,199 and is the winner. Um, The correct response here is the church. Uh, Disestablishment means ending, like having an established state religion, like an official... Mm -hmm church structure that is the you know kind of governmentally supported church structure um so anti-disestablishmentarianism means you want to keep your state church right uh you oppose the disestablishmentarians mm -hmm. um so would that be the church of england that be I the believe Anglican it, church. I, yeah, I believe in in Wales. It would have been the Anglican church. I okay. thought about what I have said, the Church of England, and then I thought the Anglican church would be what I would probably put because I'm a little fuzzy on how that all, like how the different branches of Anglicanism fit together, and whether what's in Wales is properly called the Church of England. It might have its own name, um, but like in America. There are Episcopalians. Right. In England, there's the Church of England, and those are related. They're both part of the Anglican communion. So Anglican is kind of the like the global kind of overarching label. So I thought I would have put the Anglican Church. I'm pretty right. sure that it is some form of Anglicanism that is that was the established church right. uh, we, in we Wales. Just, we just don't want to call it Anglican because we're not, you know, colonies anymore. Right. Church in Wales is the Anglican Church in Wales. So yeah, it wouldn't okay. it wouldn't be the Church of England. It would it would be the Church in Wales. Um, but Anglican, I think, is the is the this is what I what I would have what I would have put, and I think they would have accepted it. Gotcha. Um, but I guess I guess Church would have been sufficient. Yeah. Um, That's a very simple response, but yeah, yep. like you have to know what it means. So. Yep. So on Friday, April second, we have the contestants Stephanie Chapman an oncology nurse from Owasso, Oklahoma, Mary Dixon, a bookseller and poet from Lakewood, California, and Scott Schufelt, a writer originally from Tavistock, Ontario, Canada, whose one-day cash winnings total $17,199. And we get the Jeopardy! categories New Phone, Who Disco? 
Clever. Two-word U.S. cities. Navy jobs. Disney dwarf alternate names. Let's make a pact. And shake. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fun to see Mary run the Disney dwarf alternate names category. Uh, mm-hmm. Nice job mm-hmm. there, Mary. Yes. At the $1,000 level of Navy jobs, we had um, a, uh, a subject of interest to me. Uh, the clue there was whether a priest or a rabbi, you're an officer and have been given this eight-letter job title. Uh, Mary tried clergyman. That is not correct. Um, it is nine letters. If they hadn't said eight letters, possibly they would have had to take it. But they were looking for chaplain. There, uh, chaplain is what we call clergy who serve in the military, providing spiritual care to, um, to military personnel. Chaplains also, you know, the top, the job title if you're working in a hospital or like Mm -hmm. sometimes a school. Is it just kind of anywhere outside of a church itself? Yeah. Um, it's really, I mean, I believe it's related to the word for chapel. And so I think you think of like, where would there be like a chapel, but not a church per se, mm-hmm. right? So like a hospital, a school, a military base, potentially, mm-hmm. um, often those kinds of places will have chaplains. Daily Double number one comes up in the let's make a pact category at the $1,000 level as the 23rd pick. Stephanie finds it. She has 3,000 at this point. Uh, she's trailing Mary, who has 5,600. She's ahead of Scott, who has 1,800. And she wagers half of what she has, 1,500. And she gets the clue. A 1291 pact between three cantons is considered to be this European nation's founding document. She doesn't seem to know. She tries what is France. Uh, that is Incorrect. They were looking for Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Country with cantons is going to be Switzerland, usually. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For Jeopardy, it will be. Yeah. I don't know if there are other countries with cantons, but for Jeopardy, they're lo- going to be looking for Switzerland. Yep. I mean, China had canton. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Scott's taken the lead. He's at 4,600. Um, Mary's at 4,000. Stephanie has come back up a bit to 2,100. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, books for young people, languages, women in Congress, triple rhyme time, science and medicine, and in quotation marks, and catching the movie train. Books for young people ended up being almost all kind of fantasy novels, with the exception of the $2,000 clue, which was about Anne of Green Gables asking who the author was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott got that one with, he knew her full name, Lucy Maud Montgomery. Yeah. Uh, that was impressive. Yeah. Oh, he's originally from, I mean, Ontario, Canada. Canada's a really small country, so, you know, it's basically <laughs> all the same. Um, Prince Edward Island sort of makes Anne of Green Gables a very big part of its identity. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like maybe even just being Canadian gave him a leg up. Yeah, pr- yeah probably. Probably. That triple rhyme time category was fun. Uh, I feel like we don't see triple rhyme time too often outside of tournaments. Mm-hmm. 
They did pretty well. They did pretty well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They missed the, the $2,000 clue was a triple stumper, which I don't blame them for. Uh, the clue was, from the capital of Italy, he's an archer and an impresario. The, the correct response was a Roman Bowman showman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the rest were, they, yeah, they, they did pretty well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they did. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the science in medicine category at the $2,000 level. Uh, Mary finds it. It's pick number 14. She is at 7,200 behind Scott's 10,600 and ahead of Stephanie's 4,900. And she wagers 2,000. She gets a clue. Repeat kidney stones probably call for a visit to this type of kidney doctor. And she knows it right off the bat. That is a nephrologist. Mm-hmm. Understandable to keep the wager conservative at the $2,000 level. Yeah, it's going to be the hardest one in the category. So Yeah. As it turned out, a bigger wager here would have benefited her quite a bit. Could have really changed the course of the game if she if she decided to really go for it. But also with 16 clues left on the board, risking dropping to zero is a, is a riskier proposition. Daily Double number three comes up in that triple rhyme time category, which is a bit of a surprise. Often they don't put them in the wordplay kinds of categories. Uh, it's at the $1,200 level and... Scott finds it as the 27th pick. He has 15,000 at this point to Mary's 13,200 and Stephanie's 4,500. He wagers 5,000. And he gets the clue, the deceased, incredible Ms. Hepburn. And I thought that Ms. Hepburn gave you a couple of directions that you Mm -hmm. could go in and you had to get that narrowed down pretty quickly. You've got to think about whether you're going for Audrey Hepburn or Catherine Hepburn. Not much rhymes with Audrey. Uh, Audrey, right. but that doesn't fit. But then it's got to be a nickname for Catherine. He gets to it. Uh, the late great Kate is what they're looking for. And he comes up with that and lands at 20,000. Yep. And that leaves only three more clues uh, in the round. So at the end of the round, he is at 20,000. Mary is at 14,800, and Stephanie is at 5,300. And the final Jeopardy category is eponymous landmarks. The clue, in 1960, the ashes of this aviator were spread over the Venezuela natural wonder he famously cited decades earlier. This one, I I took the only guess that I could think of, and Same. it turned, turned out to be correct. I imagine mm-hmm. that was probably true for everyone. Uh, yep. But uh, Stephanie got it correct with who is angel for angel falls which to be honest i did not even know was eponymous (laughs) i just thought they were angel falls because of angels or whatever but apparently the aviator who discovered them was named angel now i know that i Uh, had that exact same experience (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh so stephanie wagered 300 uh only getting herself to 5600 mary also got it correct with who is angel and wagered 10,200 Got her to a nice even 25,000. I can't help but feel that that was too much for if she had gotten that wrong, she would have dropped below Stephanie. Mm-hmm. And Scott also got it correct with who is Angel and made a cover bet of 9601, making him a two-day champion going into next week. Yes. Uh, so this is our mid-episode break where we take a moment to remind you that we have a Patreon. There's not a whole lot of content on there. Um, we've been talking about what would be fun to 
ad, but we do have our goat recaps on there. You can listen to us talking about taking the Jeopardy test from a while ago. And, uh, and we're exploring, you know, some other ideas. And it helps us, you know, with our with our hosting costs and whatnot. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, you can find it at patreon.com slash potent potables. This is also the time when we take a moment to scold you <laughs> um, about it, things that matter, like wearing your masks and getting your vaccines when you get a chance. Gently Being encourage in- you. Yes. Well, one of the reviewers called it scolding. So I'm embracing it. This is the scolding session. Um, and we take a moment to remind you to uh, to be involved in things that matter in the world. And if you're looking for a place to connect, um, a couple of starting points we like are communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com as good starting points to find local efforts near you and ways to connect that make sense for you. So thanks. Yeah. Check those out. Emily. Yes, Kyle. Want to inform the listeners as to what we are covering this week. Are we talking about Horace Greeley? We are not talking about Horace Greeley. Okay. Are we talking about space stations? No, I considered... Actually, I considered both of those. I thought uh, we could look into both. Uh, but no. No, I decided to go a different route. All right. What about Bernini? No. That was another one I thought about, but uh, no. All right. What are we oh doing? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I don't know the last time this happened. It was like it was, uh, it was like, like it was a few times ago. I know. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't a big deal. Uh, this is from the Monday game in the double Jeopardy round. It was a rare triple stumper in the top row. It was the four hundred dollar clue of five summoners' tails. Now I realize I'm going to be talking about this like we are recording on Easter, and that was not intentional in my choice. Uh, but we are talking about the occultist Alistair Crowley. Uh, the clue was, Occultist Alistair the Beast Crowley claimed to have used blood and topaz to summon Koranzon, one of these fiends. And that was a demon. I don't know if they just thought it was too easy to guess that or what. But that was a triple stumper. And uh, I have heard that the name Alistair Crowley, like, a, a few times, but I, I know, I have known literally nothing about him. Like, even that clue, I was like, oh, he was an occultist. Oh, okay. that That's something about that. Mm. Uh, so we're going to talk about him. All right. Yeah. And again, totally unintentional to like time this with the high holy day of Christianity. But so we're talking right. about Aleister Crowley. Fun. Um, kind of. <laughs> uh, so he was born Edward Alexander Crowley. Uh, on the 12th of October, 1875. Uh, He was an English occultist, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. And he founded the religion of Thelema, identifying himself as the prophet who was entrusted with guiding humanity into the Aeon of Horus. Uh, Hmm. And uh, he, yes, (laughs) he was a, a very prolific writer. He wrote a lot of not just novels, but books, poems, treatises, lots of writings. He was born to Edward Crowley, his father, who was an engineer, but had a share in his family's brewing business, Crowley's Alton Ales. Uh, and that lucrative business allowed him to retire early uh, before Alistair Crowley was even born. His mother came from a, a family from Devonshire, Somerset, and they did not get along. Alistair and his mother uh, did not have a good relationship. She often described him as the beast, 
and mm-hmm. he took a bit of pride in that. So it might seem that at a young age, he kind of embraced that particular aspect. They were evangelical Christians. His father had been born a Quaker, but uh, had converted to the Exclusive Brethren, a faction of Christian fundamentalism that were uh, very strict, very, as you might imagine, exclusive. They were part. They were also known as the Plymouth Brethren, and they had a doctrine of uncompromising separation from the world, based on the interpretation of a couple of passages from Corinthians or Second Corinthians and Second Timothy. They, they just led a very strict life. Crowley's father was particularly devout, uh, and he was a traveling preacher for the sect, and would read chapters of the Bible to his wife and son after breakfast every day. They had a baby daughter who died in 1880, and they moved at that point. Uh, and at the age of eight, in 1883, Crowley was sent to H.T. Habersham's Evangelical Christian Boarding School in Hastings, then to Eber Preparatory in Cambridge, which was run by the Reverend Henry Darcy Champey, who Crowley uh, considered a sadist. Now, that may or may not have been true, um, depending on who you talk to. In March 1887, when Crowley was 11, his father died of tongue cancer, uh, and he describes this as a turning point in his life, for he had always maintained an admiration for his father, describing him as my hero and my friend. Hmm. Uh, However, the death of his father meant that he inherited one-third of his father's wealth, and began acting like a rich kid at school. He began misbehaving a lot and was harshly punished, and they removed him from that school after developing a kidney uh, abnormality. He attended a couple other schools, all of which he despised and left quickly. Uh, As he grew, he became more skeptical of Christianity, pointing out inconsistencies in the Bible to his religious teachers, which always goes well, uh, (laughs) and engaged in a lot of very rebellious behavior as a teenager you know in a a young man including not just smoking but also like hiring prostitutes he was sent to live with a brethren tutor in eastbourne and while there he also undertook chemistry courses at eastbourne college and developed interest in chess poetry mountain climbing and just the things that you know a young man who has a lot of money at that time would become interested in right Not, not having to work a job he became interested in other things Especially mountain climbing, that was one of his main, like, passions in life. In fact, in 1894, he climbed Beachy Head in East Sussex, and then he went to the Alps and joined the Scottish Mountaineering Club. The next year, he went to the Bernese Alps and climbed uh, five different peaks. By 1895, he had adopted the name Alistair over Edward. He didn't like the name Edward because it was his father's name, and he didn't want to, like, have the same name. Uh, It didn't seem to fit him, at least in his own mind. He also didn't like Ted or Ned. Alexander was too long. He didn't like Sandy. uh, And he has this long-winded explanation about why he liked the name Alistair. Eventually, he settled on Alistair, and that's what he became known as. In 1895, he began a three-year course at Trinity College, Cambridge. And uh, during that time, he became much more enamored with poetry, particularly the works of uh, Richard Francis Burton and Percy B. Shelley. Uh, He had a number of his own poems published in student publications during that time. He continued mountaineering, going to the Alps every year from 1894 to 1898 with his friend Oscar Eckenstein. He became uh, well-recognized among the Alpine mountaineering community. He had his first mystical experience while on holiday in Stockholm in December 1896. A number of his biographers believe that this was a result of his first same-sex sexual experience, which enabled him to recognize his bisexuality. At Cambridge, he was very sexually active 
uh, with a with many different partners, many of whom were prostitutes, uh, from one one of whom he caught syphilis from. He also, however, did continue engaging in same-sex activities, even though they were illegal, as mm. you probably know at that mm-hmm. time. In 1897, he traveled to St. Petersburg, claiming he was trying to learn Russian and considering a future diplomatic career there. However, he uh, fell ill and went into a spiral of considering mortality and the futility futility of all human endeavor. And so he gave up thoughts of a diplomatic career and became interested in the occult. I mean, as a man who has once caught a cold, I can I can attest the temptation to look into supernatural means of prolonging your life when you get the sniffles. <laughs> I understand this. In 1898, he obtained the book... The Book of Black Magic and of Pacts by A.E. Waits and The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary, uh, which were books, you know, in on the occult. He also published a set of poems, but it wasn't particularly successful. In July 1898, he left Cambridge not having taken a degree, even though he did well on his exams. In August 1898, he was in Zermatt, Switzerland, where he met the chemist Julian L. Baker, and they began talking about alchemy. They went back to London, and Baker introduced him to George Cecil Jones, who was a member of the occult society known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Crowley was initiated, and he became part of the order and began uh, developing friendships with the people involved, one of whom was Alan Bennett. Bennett took him in as his student of magic. Bennett taught him about ceremonial magic and the ritual use of drugs, which use of drugs was a major uh, factor in Crowley's life, until Bennett left for South Asia to study Buddhism. In 1899, Crowley purchased Bulliskine House in Foyers on the shore of Loch Ness in Scotland, uh, and he developed a love for Scottish culture and heritage, describing himself as the Laird of Bulliskine. Mm. Uh, and he took to cha- wearing traditional Highland dress even during visits to London. Uh, he continued publishing more poetry. Uh, uh, many of them were are erotic or decadent in their description, though they got mixed reviews for the most part. Crowley progressed through the lower grades of the Golden Dawn and was ready to enter the group's inner second order. However, he was unpopular uh, because of his bisexuality and libertine lifestyle, as well as just being a tough person to kind of get along with. He could be very, uh, very brash and abrasive and, and petty. One of those people that he had developed a feud with was William Butler Yeats, who I can't seem to get away from. (laughs) But apparently, Yeats was also a member of the Golden Dawn. The London Lodge refused to initiate Crowley into the Second Order, uh, and so he went to Paris and had one of the higher-ups in the Order there uh, initiate him personally, which caused a schism between the, the London members and the Paris order occultists they're just like us right exactly and so (laughs) and so this guy Mathers who was the guy in Paris uh sent Crowley and his mistress Elaine Simpson to attempt to seize the vault of the adepts which is a temple in London of the lodge members uh it went to court and the, the the judge ruled in favor of the London Lodge because they had paid for the space's rent. Like, they owned the space. Like, it it made no sense. Anyway, uh, so Crowley was kind of, thus kind of, you know, ostracized from the Golden Dawn. In 1900, Crowley traveled to Mexico through the United States and began a relationship with a local woman. Basically, anywhere he went, he found a woman or two or three to have a relationship with. He continued experimenting with ceremonial magic, working with John D's Enochian 
invocations, which uh, John Dee was an occultist uh, from earlier in the Elizabethan era. His Anakian language claimed to, to be angelic and claimed to be, uh, you know, have like supernatural abilities. He later claimed to have been initiated into Freemasonry, and uh, he wrote a play about Wagner's Tannhäuser, as well as a number of poems. He, he was just, he was a, a prolific writer, like I said. He also climbed a number of mountains there after his friend Oscar Eckenstein came to join him. And uh, after that, he went to San Francisco and then Hawaii. On the ship to Hawaii, he had a brief affair with a married woman named Alice Rogers, and he wrote a series of poems about her, published as Alice, an adultery. It's like, be subtle, dude. Uh, then he went across the Pacific to Japan and Hong Kong and eventually got to Ceylon, which is the old name for Sri Lanka, where he met up with Alan Bennett, who had previously taught him. Uh, he got into yoga, spent some time studying in Kandy. So he incorporated kind of some the spiritual aspects of like Buddhist meditation and yoga and that kind of thing into his own like personal spirituality. And that came through later on in, in the religion that he uh, developed. However, he contracted malaria while he was out there. He made an attempt to summit K2 along with Eckenstein and uh, another team of mountaineers. At that point, K2 had never been summited. However, they weren't able to make it all the way up. He came down with influenza, malaria, and snow blindness on the trek, as well as a number of others became sick too, and so they had to turn back. He went to Paris in 1902 became a fixture of the Parisian art scenes. He wrote a number of more poems. They were based on the work of Auguste Rodin, and that's known as Rodin in Rhyme from 1907. He also hung out with Somerset Maugham and Oliver Haddo, uh, along with a bunch of other names from that time period. Uh, he got married there uh, to Rose Edith Kelly. However, it was a marriage of convenience to prevent her from entering an arranged marriage. The Kelly family was upset, However, they went on a honeymoon to Paris, Cairo, and then Ceylon, and Crowley apparently fell in love with her on the honeymoon and worked to prove his affections. He wrote her a bunch of poems as well. Hmm. After that, in 1904, this is where it gets good, Crowley and Rose arrived in Cairo. They claimed to be a prince and princess and rented an apartment in which Crowley set up a temple room and began invoking ancient Egyptian deities while studying Islamic mysticism in Arabic. According to Crowley, at, during this time, Rose became regularly delirious and informed him, they are waiting for you. She, at one point, explained that they were the god Horus, and on the 20th of March, 1904, proclaimed that the equinox of the gods has come. She took him to the nearby uh, or like Egyptian history museum, showed him the 7th century BC mortuary stele, known as the uh, stele of Ankhafenkansu, and Crowley thought it's important that the exhibit's number was Exhibit 666, which is the number of the beast in Christian belief. Uh, and he later called that the Stella of Revealing. And so he said that after having looked at that, he heard the a disembodied voice that claimed to be Iwas, the messenger of Horus. He says he wrote down everything the voice told him over the next three days, and everything he wrote down he titled Liber Alvelegis, also known as the Book of the Law. This book proclaimed that humanity was entering a new aeon and that Crowley would serve as its prophet. It stated that a supreme moral law was to be introduced in this aeon. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And that people should learn to live in tune with their will. Capital W. Will. Uh, this book and the philosophy that it espoused became the cornerstone of Crowley's religion, Thelema. 
he claims that he ignored the instructions of Iwas, which supposedly commanded him to take the Stella of Revealing from the museum, fortify his own island, translate the book into all the world's languages, and spread it to all corners of the world. He did not do that. Instead, he sent some typescripts to some occultists he knew. So that was the beginning of Thelema. He went back to Bulliskine. He believed that uh, Mathers, the Golden Dawn guy who had helped him out before, had begun using magic against him, and so their relationship broke down. In 1905, July 1905, they had their first child, a daughter named Lilith, because of course it would be, and Crowley wrote some things to entertain his recuperating wife. He began a uh, an expedition to climb Kanchenjunga in the Himalayas of Nepal, which was widely recognized as the world's most treacherous mountain. It did not go well. His crew eventually mutinied against him, and a number of them died on the way down. And he was widely blamed by the mountaineering community, so that kind of put a put a damper on his his climbing. He went to India, where he took part in big game hunting and wrote *The Scented Garden*, which was a homoerotic work. He continued traveling through Burma and southern China with his family. Uh, Lilith and Rose had come to meet up with him. During this trip, he smoked opium quite a bit. Rose and Lilith returned to Europe. He went to Shanghai. And this is where he met up with Elaine Simpson, who we'd heard from before. Uh, And they looked over the Book of the Law, and they began performing rituals to attempt to contact Iwas. Crowley continued traveling around the world to try and uh, drum up money for another expedition. When he returned to Britain, he found that his daughter had died of typhoid in India, and he blamed his wife and her increasing alcoholism for it, which is always a good move. Mm -hmm. At this time, he began a number of uh, short-lived romances with other women, uh, and also his second daughter was born. So in 1907... He was meeting up with his old mentor, George Cecil Jones, and they continue performing rituals uh, in Surrey, making heavy use of hashish. He actually wrote an essay called The Psychology of Hashish in 1909, championing the, the drug as an aid to mysticism. He claimed that he had been contacted once again by Iwas and that uh, he had given him two further texts, so he continued writing more holy books of Thelema. His inheritance was running out in 1909. And to try and earn money, uh, he was hired by a man, the Earl of Tankerville, to protect him from witchcraft. But uh, Crowley recognized that this man's paranoia was really just based in his cocaine addiction and took him on holiday to France and Morocco to recuperate. So it all went away after that. Hmm. Um, he also began taking in students during this time. Crowley and Jones founded an occult order to act as a successor to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Uh, and they, were, they call it A... A, but it's not AA, it's A, and then the three dots in a triangle, that's usually like a therefore symbol in oh. like logic. So it's A, three dots in a triangle, A, three dots in a triangle. I don't think it's A, therefore, A, therefore. I think it's just the symbology they use. Also, this time he began the production of a biannual periodical called the Equinox, which uh, was kind of the official organ for the organization. In 1909, in November of 1909, he divorced Rose... He was frustrated with her alcoholism, but he divorced her on the grounds of his own adultery. Apparently, they remained friends, and Rose and his daughter continued to live at Bulliskine, but she was eventually institutionalized in 1911. In November 1909, Crowley and his, uh, at this time, partner, Victor Newberg, who's also a like, sexual partner as well as magical partner, they went to Algeria, and Crowley began 
during that time reciting the Quran on a daily basis. They continued evoking Enochian magic, and they published their like rituals and and the things they apparently discovered in the equinox. It was at this time, following a mountaintop sex magic ritual, Crowley performed an evocation to the demon Koranzon involving blood sacrifice and considered to be the watershed of his magical career. Not sure what the blood sacrifice was, but that 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 particular detail alone led to uh, a major like pushback in public public eye. Yeah. So that's what comes from the the Jeopardy clue there. Returning to London in 1910, January, he was sued by the Golden Dawn for publishing their secrets in the Equinox, uh, but the court found in favor of Crowley. However, this helped him gain more fame. This attracted two new members to the AA. With this, he began putting on some shows called the Rites of Eleusis, which were kind of like dramatized versions of the evocations that he had been doing uh, in the temple. In 1912, Crowley published The Book of Lies, a work of mysticism, which was more more poetic and less rule-oriented. And he became involved with the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, which was another uh, a, a wider spread occult group uh, in Europe. In 1914, he went to the United States. He was living a largely hand-to-mouth existence, relying on donations from AA members and payments made to the OTO. He, he came to the United States aboard the Lusitania in October 1914. He moved into a hotel and started writing for Vanity Fair, uh, writing for the famed astrologer Evangeline Adams. He continued experimenting with sex magic, which is a major thing in his whole life. He became involved as someone who uh, like spoke for the German side during World War I, in the United hmm. States as an attempt to supposedly keep the U.S. neutral. Like, he he worked, he wrote for the propagandist paper The Fatherland, claiming because he was a supporter of Irish independence from Great Britain, and so he wanted Britain to lose the war, supposedly. Uh, but it's a number of uh, biographers claim that he was actually, like, working as an intelligence agent and trying to actually make, like, be super hyperbolic and make the German... Uh, the German side seem ridiculous in what he was doing. Who knows? I, I I did not see anything that said, like, absolutely certainly, like, here's the paperwork that says he was doing this, but might have been, might have not. He lived in a bunch of different places in the U.S., like New Orleans, uh, New York, uh, San Francisco. In 1920, after the war had wrapped up and public opinion of him had still gone down because of the war, uh, he was uh, under attack from the tabloid John Bull. Uh, this is back in London. And he also became addicted to heroin, uh, which had been prescribed to him because of his asthma. At this time, he came up with the idea of forming a community of Thelemites, which he would call the Abbey of Thelema. So he moved to Cephalu, Sicily, and established his abbey there. His lovers, Ninette Shumway and Leah Hersig, who they were both women and involved in his life equally, I guess. They had children together, and they lived perfectly happily, his idea of heaven. Hmm. Uh, they they performed rituals to the sun god Ra at set times during the day, occasionally performing Gnostic masses, and just uh, kind of lived their life. They attracted new followers, among them included the film star Jane Wolfe. 1922, Crowley returned to Paris for a treat to try to kick his heroin addiction, but it didn't work. He went to London in search of money, and he criticized the Dangerous Drugs Act of 1920, 
writing a novel, Diary of a Drug Fiend, in July. The Abbey was essentially shut down when Benito Mussolini uh, learned of his activities in April 23 and gave him a deportation notice. Crowley and Hersig went to Tunis. He tried to give up heroin again, but it didn't work. And for the next, for basically the rest of the 1920s, uh, he had problems with the OTO, that um, organization that he had become involved with. He butted head with, with a lot of the leadership and a lot of the uh, government authorities, authorities of France and Germany and uh, the UK were unhappy with his writings because, of course, they were considered black magic in a lot of ways. In 1930, he moved to Berlin, where he took on another partner and another lover, and he got involved in the German Expressionism movement. He also met with people like Aldous Huxley and Alfred Adler. In 1932, he took in the communist Gerald Hamilton as a lodger who introduced him to many figures in Berlin's far left. Uh, it's possible that Crowley was acting as a spy for British intelligence. So there are a lot of like moments in his life where it's like, it seems like he was acting as a, a spy of some kind, monitoring the communist movement in, in Germany or, uh, you know, find out what the Bolsheviks are doing or, or like whatever they're looking at. Returning to London in 1932, he took a new scarlet woman who was named Pearl Brooksmith. And he, and he published a couple more uh, papers, but uh, he ran into a bunch of financial problems from a lot of lawsuits. He tried suing a lot of people for libel, but most of the cases did not work out, so he ended up losing a lot of money. He developed a friendship with Deidre Pat- Patricia Doherty, who offered to bear his child, who was born in May 1937. That, that language is funny to me. Offered mm. to bear his child. Uh, he nicknamed him Alistair Ataturk. In 1937, he gave a number of lectures on yoga and continued uh, living off of contributions supplied by the OTO, the the OTO's uh, chapter in California, led by rocket scientist John Whiteside Parsons, or Jack Parsons, who was one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It's like, all of these connections are really weird to me. He even thought that Adolf Hitler might convert to Thelema. He saw it as an opportunity to get a new, you know, the the religion of the future in when they were very, like, anti-Christian and all that, Uh, but pretty quickly was like, nope, nope, never mind. That's not going to work. No, no, no. So at least he dodged that bullet. He offered the Naval Intelligence Division his services when the Second World War broke out, but they declined. Um, He still interacted with a variety of figures like Roald Dahl and Ian Fleming. Uh, He claimed to have created the V for Victory sign first used by the BBC, but this has never been proven. In 1944, he published the Book of Thoth, which, along with Lady Frida Harris... Uh, established a Thelemic tarot card set. In 1944, he moved to Aston Clinton in Buckinghamshire, as, and then to Hastings in Sussex. And his health continued to, to, to deteriorate from his various addictions and also just lack of, like, lack of maintaining good health. And on the 1st of December 1947, Crowley died of chronic bronchitis aggravated by pleurisy. Hmm. His ashes were buried in... Hampton, New Jersey, in the garden of his friend Carl Germer. So that's his life. So, like, he did a lot of things. And he was, like, he had his fingers in a lot of, I don't know, pies. But, like, he was a poet. He was a novelist. He was a mountain climber. He was an occultist. He established a religion and claimed he was the prophet of it. So the big takeaways are, like, his religion is Thelema. He believed that it was the the religion of the future. He believed that the 20th century was the beginning of a new aeon of humanity, the aeon of Horus, and that mm-hmm. the the law that should be followed was 
do what thou wilt uh less less so much just like a do whatever you want like a nihilistic kind of like you can do whatever you want it doesn't matter kind of thing he had, he believed in that that each person had a had a true will that was more like a divine purpose kind of thing and that your job was to discover what that is and pursue that regardless of what you know other religious might or other religions might tell you you should be or you know societal pressures or whatever so it, like in a way, it's like, oh yeah, it's it's like he's saying, like, be your true self, but also, you know, worship these ancient Egyptian deities every day, and also like invoke demons. Yeah, um, he believed that Thelema was essential to women's emancipation, but he was also just rather sexist. He viewed he described women as moral inferiors who had to be treated with firmness, kindness, and justice. He was also extremely uh, racist, as most. I mean, people were then, but especially rich white people uh, mm-hmm. still are. Um, uh, and he he holds a very strong place in British like popular culture. So there we go. Huh. Wow. That's yeah. a quite a life. Yeah, he just he just went, and he was like constantly traveling. It's so weird. Like yeah. he just had money. He had so much money. Anyway, all right. Are you ready for a quiz? Yes, I am ready for a quiz. All right. So these are all, you know, related to Crowley in some way and what we talked about. Question one. The name Aleister Crowley may or may not be familiar to the average American listener, but Crowley has been used for characters on recent television programs. Both shows I'm speaking of feature a demonic character with the name, one played by David Tennant, aired on Amazon Prime, and the other played by Mark Shepard, which aired on The CW. For five points each, name these two shows. All right. Um, so the David Tennant one is uh, Good Omens. And the CW one, I'm not sure I'm going to guess Supernatural. It is indeed Good Omens and Supernatural. Yay! Nice. Yeah. And uh, Crowley on Good Omens, pr- pretty much, we're pretty much sure Neil Gaiman named him after... Alistair Crowley. Yeah, that that makes sense. Like, that would sort of fit with Neil Gaiman's. Yeah, he ne- he's never said that like specifically, but he he's said things like everything everything goes back to Crowley or something like that, and it's like okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, cool. So you were at ten points. Yay. Question two: Crowley espoused belief in the quote Scarlet Woman, who served as the one womb from whom all men are born. He claimed that several of his lovers were or might have been avatars of the Scarlet Woman. He likely took the name from imagery in the Revelation to John of a woman who rode astride the beast, which was his own favorite nickname, who was also known as the Mother of Abominations or Mother of Harlots. What is this name, which is also associated much earlier in the Bible with opposition to God? Oh, uh, is this like the Whore of Babylon? Yes, or, or just Babylon. Although yeah. um, his spelling of it in Thelema, Babylon is spelled B-A-B-A-L-O-N. But yeah, in Thelema, there is there is a apparently the belief that there is the Scarlet Woman, the like the Great Mother of all. Hmm. Um, question three. All right, you're at twenty. Speaking of, kind of related to the Bible. According to debatably historical writings, 
The Testament of an Old Testament king describes his ability to trap demons and bend them to his will. It claims that he was given a signet ring with the symbol of God by the archangel Michael, and with it ensnared numerous demons, including Beelzebul, the prince of demons. With Beelzebul in thrall, he was able to command all the demons which he used to build a notable structure. Who was this king? Huh. You said Old Testament king, and I went right to, like, kings of Israel, but it's probably not going to be one of them. Um, it's going to be, like, one of the one of the other ones, like the Babylonian ones, or... Let's try... Let's try Nebuchadnezzar. You actually were on the right track with kings of Israel. It's Solomon. Oh, no! Okay! Yeah, the All Testament right. of Solomon is a, again, questionable yeah. source. The scholars who have studied it are like, no, we're pretty sure, we're, we're like certain it wasn't written by Solomon. We're pretty sure it, it got its like final touches in, in the medieval period. Uh, but it tells the story of Solomon being given this ring from the archangel Michael. He uses it to trap a demon named Ornius, who is harassing uh, one of his favored young people. And eventually he captures Beelzebul and uses the demon, like the labor of the demons to build the, the great temple. Ooh, that's Jerusalem. fascinating. Yeah, that's a, a trivia thing for all the listeners. Demonology strongly associate with King Solomon. Okay. Uh, no, there's all right, the now I know. Testament of Solomon or the Lesser Key of Solomon. Any of that has to do with demonology. Uh, okay, so you're still at 20 points. Question four. Oscar Eckenstein is one of the best known of the early mountaineers. He traveled with Crowley on a number of climbs, including the first major attempt of, attempt of K2. He is also known as one of the pioneers of a certain rock climbing sport. It is notable for its lack of equipment and is typically done on artificial walls, low outcroppings, or fallen rocks surrounding larger edifices. What is the name of this particular type of rock climbing, which should not be confused with touring the campus of the University of Colorado? Oh! I think I know this one. It's bouldering. It is bouldering. Yes. Yes. He was like one of the first boulderers, I guess. Uh, yeah. Bouldering is, is basically just like free climbing on things that you probably won't die if you fall off of. Hopefully, at least. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just like free climbing over things. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Nice. 30 points. Uh, question five. Aleister Crowley placed 73rd in a 2002 BBC poll naming the 100 Greatest Britons. He has remained a part of British culture in a variety of ways. One of those is his appearance as a cardboard cutout alongside over 50 others, including Marlon Brando, Marilyn Monroe, Laurel and Hardy, Oscar Wilde, Sigmund Freud, and Lahiri Mahasaya. This image graces the front cover of what chart-topping album of 1967? Oh, I have no idea, but I have a vague idea that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band has like a crowd of like that it that that maybe would fit. So we'll go with that. That is a good choice because it is Sgt. Pepper's Yay, Lonely Hearts Club it. Band. Yes, nice. Look at me getting a sports question and a music question. How about that? Unbelievable. Nice, nice, nice. Thanks. All right. Uh, yeah, lots of people on that. Like, uh, I saw that and I was like, I wonder who else is on there. Like, oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> apparently they they were uh, 
they wanted to include at least certain members wanted to include Jesus or Gandhi or Hitler. Mm. So they they were told no to all of those. <laughs> I feel like Gandhi would have been okay, but sure. Okay, maybe 1967 uh, in England was different. Maybe, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I imagine a lot of the people who wouldn't have liked Gandhi would have been in England around that time. Anyway. Yeah, fair. Uh, all right, you're up to 40 points. And the final category is, once again, I got to ask about D&D. Oh, no. Um... I will wager 30. Okay, for 70 points, if you get it right. Any mention of the occult in popular culture makes me want to ask a question about Dungeons and Dragons, but I think I've done enough of that in this podcast. However, I can include D&D when I ask about the craze re-emerging in the 1980s, where parents were warned about and subsequently freaked out about their children's exposure to black magic. D&D, rock music, goth style, sexual deviance, communism, and countless other quote-unquote influences were cast as instruments of the devil. What is the rhyming name of that craze which persists to this day? Oh! Oh, I know that! It's Satanic Panic. It is Satanic Panic. Which is, I I didn't even think about this when I was writing this clue, but uh, very recently in the news... Given Lil Nas X's uh, newest single uh-huh. and release of a apparently shoe line, yes. Uh, so yeah, it is the Satanic Panic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, still around. People still apparently very very concerned about it. I did yep. some. I did a little more reading about Satanic Panic. It's it's wild. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a lot there's a lot in there. Anyway. Especially with, like, QAnon stuff. It's really dumb. Anyway. Okay. Yep. (laughs) Well, hey, you got 70 points. Well done. I know a lot about the occult, it would appear. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Uh, It's adjacent to my field. (laughs) It's like, know thy enemy, I guess. Yeah. Um, This was a very fun quiz and deep dive. And uh, and this deep dive took me from a name that I had heard a couple times that I was like, well, that's the name of the Good Omens guy. I guess it came from somewhere to like feeling like I've experienced Alistair Crowley. So thanks. Yeah, you're you're welcome. I learned a lot, too. Yeah, <laughs> most of most of listening to you explain his life was like very like this is fine dot gif. Um, right, but- <laughs> really. I, I mean, if you if you take out like the the like we the really weird stuff, um, he he did kind of lean into the idea of like oh human sacrifice and blah blah blah. Even though he really didn't do human sacrifice, like there's he didn't do that. Uh, it, it wasn't as bad as he as people like made it out to be. Mm-hmm. He was very strange supported some weird things but really i my take on him is he's just like he was a a rich frustrated like bored kid like he Mm. he was a he was a bored rich boy yeah Uh, rich i should say white boy and just like kind of just went off the rails yep so (laughs) a lot of these biographies you're like it could have been so different if he had had a therapist (laughs) 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 anyway (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Kyle, for for a really uh, 
fascinating deep dive and a very fun quiz. And thank you listeners for spending your time with us. Hope you enjoyed it as well. Make sure and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review or a rating if you would be so kind. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's on patreon.com slash potent potables. And uh, if that's not something that's of interest to you at this time, you can still tell your friends, especially if they like Jeopardy about our podcast. We are on Facebook at Potent Potables and Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. <laughs> <laughs>